Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are Bibles in the back, and we'll put the verses on the screen as well, so you can follow on the screen, you can follow on your phone, whatever you want to do. Genesis chapter 11. After today, we're taking a lengthy break from Genesis, because today we're completing the first section of this book. Today we end the section of Genesis that is really covering what's called primeval history. Primeval history. That's the, that's the earliest ages in the, in the history of the world. So you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with my life? Primeval history. I, I've got challenges, right? I've got problems. You're talking to me about primeval history? Why should I listen to you, Tab? Well, here's why. Because history repeats itself. This is ancient history. But history repeats itself. I've been reading this book. It's a frightening book. It's keeping me up late at night. It's called Dope Sick. It's a new book about the opium-related prescription drug epidemic in parts of the country. It's so sad. The author talks about how the dangers of, of opium-related drugs have been well-known for a long time. In the 1800s, a German pharmacist warned about this, this drug he had isolated that he named morphium. And then we gave it to Civil War veterans. And it is said 100,000 of them got addicted. They, they wore the drug around their neck on necklaces to keep getting hits from it. By 1900, it's said that a quarter of a million Americans were addicted to heroin-related, morphine-related drugs. In the early 20th centuries, doctors were sounding the alarm that patients were getting addicted with as few as three doses. But since the 1990s, this author's pointing out, since the 1990s, we ignored those warnings and history has been repeating itself. In fact, the author quotes Gore Vidal, who calls our country the United States of amnesia. The United States of amnesia. Here's my point. It is possible to approach this history with a similar amnesia. To, to ignore warnings and to fail to benefit from this ancient history and find it repeating again and again in our own hearts, in our own lives. So, friends, this is very relevant. So here's what I want to do. I want to pay close attention to this ancient history and then draw some lessons for you and me. All right, so here's the history. Here's the history beginning in verse 1. Genesis 11 Verse 1, we find, now the whole earth had one language, the same words. And as people migrated from the east, so the, the great flood has just happened. People are migrating from the east. They find a plain in the land of Shinar and, and settled there. So the people have one language. They can all communicate together. That's helpful. And they find this nice open piece of land called Shinar, and they... And they settle down there, which seems so understandable, doesn't it? Don't we all just want to settle down somewhere? 
build a home, build a life. They, they, they settle down. It seems so understandable, but the Bible doesn't find that very understandable in its broader storyline. You see, back in chapter 1, God created mankind, and He, and he blessed us. And He said, be fruitful, multiply. And do you recall? He said, fill the earth, fill the earth. And the flood happens, and then Three times in Genesis 8 and 9, God says again, multiply, fill the earth. I want you to fill this place. I want to, be, I want to see this good land filled up with my image bearers, my representatives. I want to see them everywhere, so fill the earth. So these people say, you know what? That fill the earth thing is overrated. I mean, let's just settle down. It's, it's comfortable here, and I like comfort. It's comfortable right here in Shinar. So we're going to chuck God's plan and go on our own. And the problem with that becomes even clearer as we read on. Notice verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for for mortar. This, this is kind of a technological breakthrough. Okay, this is now kiln-fired bricks they're making, and they use bitumen, which I understand is kind of a sticky product of crude oil, to stick the bricks together. So this is technological breakthrough to change your life. This is mankind's prowess. This is iPhone 10 on steroids in their day. This is good stuff. The problem is not new technology. The problem is with our hearts, as we see in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. We're really going to settle down. And a tower, notice, a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. So they're not just settling down now. They're, they're building a tower, notice, to the heavens. This is mankind thinking he can reach God on his own. I, I've got a, a ladder I'm going to climb up to God on my own. This is mankind, in effect, attempting to be God himself. Let us reach the heavens. Why? Did you see why? To make a name for ourselves. To, man, to stake out some glory for me. Out of a desire for some kind of security. Do you see their fear? Lest we be dispersed. Lest we be scattered and fill the whole earth. So think about it. God's purpose to fill the earth, that, that wasn't enough security for them. We say, you know, I don't think God knows what he's thinking about or talking about here. We're going to settle down lest we be dispersed because it feels good to be together. I feel really secure right here in the security I myself can provide for little old me. It is, friends, it is one big monument to our own self-sufficiency. One big monument to what we can do on our own. And we know this temptation, don't we? Stories told of Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, 
whom I'm not putting down. Great boxer was flying on an airplane. The plane hit some turbulence. So the pilot said, please fasten your seatbelts. He puts the fasten your seatbelt sign on. The flight attendant, attendant comes down the aisle to check and make sure all the passengers have their seatbelts on. She noticed that Muhammad Ali does not have his seatbelt on, so she leans over and says, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? Muhammad Ali, the story goes, stands up and says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And this flight attendant was very quick thinking. She said, yeah, but Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> we can relate to that, can't we? We know what that's like. Friends, I know what that's like in my life every day. This self-sufficiency, what can I do in my own strength for my own glory? That's the problem. Problem's not living in a city. The problem's not designing a tower per se. The problem is self-sufficiency for self-glorification. That's what's going on here. They put brick on top of brick and this, this tower just gets higher and higher and they're saying to themselves, we got the kiln going. We got this new mortar thing. Watch out up above. Watch out heavens. Here we come. We're making a name for ourselves so that when people drive by on their camels, they're going to stop and see this tower and go, wow, who built that? I mean, this thing is impressive. So impressive, no one's going to scatter us from this place. But don't you know, the things we find impressive are often not so impressive to God. We're impressed by money and career and position and the newest clothes and the nicest cars and not bad things. But God doesn't find them all so impressive. So at the turning point of the story, the perspective shifts to heaven. And we find out what God's take is on all this in verse 5. Verse 5 we read, And the Lord... The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So catch this. Mankind is building this tower to reach to the heavens, but from God's perspective, the thing is so puny, he has to come down to check it out. What man thinks reaches up to the heavens, God can hardly see. He's, he's squinting. Yeah, I think I see something. Let me come down here and take a look more closely. Now, just so you don't understand, God is everywhere. He knows all. He sees all. This is not some primitive view of God. This is a form of satire. This is like what they do um, for political comedy, late night television. This is satire to make a point. And the point is this, that mankind's greatest achievements, our most amazing accomplishments are, are puny compared with God's greatness and God's glory and God's power. That's what's happening here. So God gathers his angels to address how far off track mankind has gotten in verse 6. In verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. 
communicating together like this, cooperating together like this. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is not God feeling threatened by mankind. This is God now seeing He needs to intervene like a father would intervene when his small child finds a knife and starts playing with it. That's what's happening here. God intervenes because, as one writer put it, this tower is one anti-God project that is going to lead to more. The rebellion doesn't take us upwards. It spirals downwards. So God really mercifully here intervenes in verse 7. Come, verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, scattered them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. I would have loved to have been there for this. Wouldn't you just, not to experience it, but to observe it. You're like, hey, Frank, pass me another brick. Sorry, what'd you say, Frank? Frank, Frank, you're mumbling. Frank, speak clearly. I can't work with you if you're going to mumble. Frank, what do you say? Hey, John, John, I don't, I can't understand Frank. Would you talk to, what's the matter, John? Guys, come on, stop it. It's just, it start your world starts to just come apart and they divide and eventually go their own way. And construction on the tower stops. This monument to our greatness becomes a monument to our folly. And the exact, the exact thing they were trying to avoid happens. They are, they are scattered. But then verse 9 gives us the punchline. Verse 9 really explains what this scene is really all about. Verse 9 says, therefore, in other words, here's the point. Verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel or Babel, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused, confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the name of the city really becomes the primary point, this name Babel. And it's a play on words. We don't read Hebrews, so we don't catch this. But the Hebrew word Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. In other words, it's just a mixed up place. It's a confused place. So that's the history, primeval history, ancient history. Why is that history in the Bible? For you and me? Well, to answer that, to know what the meaning is here, you have to ask, well, what did this mean for the first readers? That's where meaning is located, primarily. What did the author mean for the first readers? Ancient Israel, who are at this point wandering in a desert wilderness trying to head toward a land God had promised them. And they are filled with fears and filled with anxiety and wondering, 
Is God really fulfilling all of His plans for us? Is God going to bring His promises really to pass? We've got all these hostile nations around us. We've got people not very happy about us being here. They're not just opening their doors. Here, take our land. We'd love to give you our land. In fact, there are spies in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Their spies come back and say, the cities in this land are fortified up to heaven. Sound familiar? It's intimidating. That was their situation. But around this time, a little before, the most impressive city in the world was called Babylon. And the name Babel... Later on in the Bible, it's translated, want to guess how? Babylon. So when these first readers, track with me, it's a little confusing. These first readers are reading this about Babel. They are making a connection between that ancient place with the tower and that fearful, intimidating city called Babylon. And Babylon was the pinnacle of the ancient world. San Diego, we call San Diego America's finest city, and it's beautiful. We call New York financial capital of the world. We call L.A. entertainment capital of the world. Mix all those together, and you've got Babylon, most impressive city in the world. But to the one true God, Babylon in Israel's day is kind of like Babel in this day. It's just so puny. God's got to come down and kind of squint, and I think I see it. What's so impressive to us, he said, looks like a mixed up place to me. Looks like a lot of confusion. Do you see what this was meant, meant to the first readers? I think the point, the point was Israel, do not be afraid. Your God is the one true God. Don't be afraid, wandering in the wilderness, concerned about all these nations, thinking about that great city of Babylon. Let me give you a story so you would know that your God is the one true God. And that would have been like, like a warning, a warning that human arrogance is futile before the one true God. And that really would have been a promise too, wouldn't it? A promise that the one true God would do all He had purposed for them. And we need that warning and promise. You and I need that. Because this history repeats itself. This history happens all the time. Stories told of, well, actually, it's not just a story. This is kind of a story. If you, if you walk the grounds at Harvard University... There's a place called Emerson Hall. It, it houses the philosophy department. And inscribed in large letters, the words from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's kind of like, God is so great, we are so small, but it's amazing, God cares for us. But the story goes, story goes that the designers of the building wanted a very different inscription. They had told the stonemasons to put above the, the archway at Emerson Hall, mankind is the pinnacle of all. And then they went on vacation. 
And the stonemason was a Christian, and he said, I'm not doing that. I don't care if I never work again in this town. I'm going to put, what is man, that you are mindful of him. Now, I think it's an urban legend. But it makes a good point, doesn't it? Between a God-centered life and a man-centered life, this kind of history we find in Genesis 11 that repeats over and over in my own heart. So think about that warning and think about that promise with me. Here, here's, here's how we could think about this in light of the, the warning you might say. First, first thing to take away, there is only one true God. There's only one true God, so we, we must renounce all attempts to be Him. Just one true God, and we ain't Him. You see, Genesis is a warning. Genesis 11 is a warning against human pride and human arrogance. And friends, I need that warning. I confess to you, I'm a tower builder. I like to build my own little towers to make a name for myself out of my ability to show you my glory. I can do that with just about anything. Sermon. Life in the church. I mean, just this week I was aware of this. My own little anti-God project. I go online to look at our savings. Over the years now, Sung and I have been married 21 years. Had an anniversary this week. 21 years. And over the 21 years, we've been able to save a little bit each month, a little bit, put away long-term savings, put it in the stock market. Over 21 years, it's grown a little bit. We've had some good years in the stock market over those 20 years. So I, and I knew the market's been up recently. I heard S&P, new, new high, new record. So I'm going to go see, uh, see what the balances look like. See, we're benefiting from this market climb. And I check out the balances. Sure enough, they've gone up a few dollars. Happy about that. Close the browser. And this thought comes into my mind. I, I might want to say it could have been from the Holy Spirit. Tab, this is where you're finding your security, isn't it? Tab, you're feeling pretty good about what you have achieved for yourself, aren't you, Tab? Tab, you're acting as if your great wisdom and your great ability have provided enough for you and your family, and you have acted like you actually control the stock market, and you act like you control the whole world economy, and you act like you have done all of this on your own, wise enough to invest just like you did. You think Steve Farrington should be learning from you right now. You think a different career path might be yours, a financial planner. Tab, you're amazing. What a tower. Do you see what I'm doing? Self-sufficiency. To make a name. Self-glorification. Can you relate? Anybody identify with that? You think, my body is healthy. And thanks be to God if it is. But I think my body is healthy because of me and me alone. I mean, I work out, try to eat right most of the time. 
I'm healthy because of me. Thank you very much. Or we could be successful in business. And we think, I have worked very hard. Look at what I've achieved. I have climbed the corporate ladder. My hard work has got me where I am. I'm a self-made man. Or we think even in our parenting, we make our kids into our towers. I've got pretty well-behaved kids. I have read all the right books. I've applied them in all the right ways. I have done it. I have done it right. And look how they turned out. Just like I had planned, look what I have caused. Or in my schoolwork, I think, look, academic success. Do you know my GPA? Can I slip it into conversation? Look at what I have. A lot of time, a lot of time in the library, baby. Now, I'm not minimizing our own responsibility. I'm just highlighting how in our hearts it becomes a tower. It's our own glory. And God sees our little tower and he comes down and he says, okay, I see you worked hard, that's good. I see you've sought to be faithful, that's good. But I'm just trying to figure out how all this is about you. I'm trying to figure out how you achieved all this, Tab. I'm, I'm squinting, but I'm not sure how it was all you. I mean, who gave you that brain that works so well in your classes? Who did? And who transformed your child's heart by the power of Jesus Christ? And who gave you that job in the first place? And who is sustaining your body moment by moment, keeping your little heart beating? Do you see the, the folly? How foolish our towers can be? And I just wonder if God in His love is showing you what He showed me this week. That balloon of self it needs to be popped on a regular basis. And here's a, here's a verse that helps me. Let me, give, let me throw a verse out to you. This helps me. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Here's a, here's a verse to memorize. The Apostle Paul writes to these people in a city called Corinth, and he says, what do you have that you did not receive? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> what do you have? What do you possess that hasn't been a gift from God? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? It's saying all you have and all you are is a gift. Yes, work hard. Yes, be faithful. But if anything good comes out of that, if anything praiseworthy comes out of that, then you are to say, what do I have? God, that is not a gift from you. And then you can do what a guy named Thomas Watson said to do, and that's transfer the glory to God. You transfer, you take any glory you think you might have, and you transfer it to God, and you say, Lord, glory is due to you only. You acknowledge all you have is a gift. You transfer the glory to God. And then one more thing helps pop the balloon of self. Prayer to God. Because prayer says, I am not God. I need you, the one true God. Prayer, at a minimum, just says to God, I need you because I ain't you. And that's a good thing to say. So there is one true God, friends, one true God, and we, we renounce all attempts to be Him. But what about the promise? I said there's a promise. What about the promise? Well, I think it's this. There is only one true God, 
so He will fulfill His good purposes for us. There's only one true God, so He is able to do this. He's able to fulfill every single good purpose He has for you. See, Genesis 11, in some ways, is a story of hope. Hope for Israel 3,000 years ago plus, and hope for us today. See, in Genesis, the pattern to this point, we've seen judgment already, right? And the pattern to this point is sin and judgment and a glimmer of grace. There's sin, there's judgment, and a little glimmer of hope. So Adam and Eve sin. Adam and Eve rebel. God doesn't immediately wipe them out. In fact, He gives the promise of a Redeemer to come. One who would rescue them. Glimmer of grace. Cain murders his brother Abel. God judges him, puts a mark on Cain to protect him as well. And then Seth is born to Adam and Eve to carry on the promise of a deliverer. A little glimmer of grace. We saw last week, major flood, major major judgment. Mankind's wickedness is great. But lo and behold, this guy named Noah finds grace. God puts him in an ark, protects him in this boat. That's the pattern. You get to chapter 11. There's sin. There's judgment. Where's the grace? In fact, catch this. Chapters 10 and 11 really are reversed. Chapter 10 is the scattering of the people, the nations. Chapter 11 is what caused it. It's set up intentionally so that in chapter 11 you're going... Lord, where's the grace? I mean, we had a pattern going. I thought this was working out pretty good. There's no glimmer of grace. It looks pretty dark. Lord, where is your promise to rescue? And then you're ready for what happens in the next chapter. Then you're ready for God in chapter 12, going to a guy named Abram, later Abraham, probably a moon worshiper, and he says, Abram, guess what? I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into a big old family. And through your family, all families, all nations of the earth will be blessed. The rest of the Bible is about that promise. God says, Abram, through you, I'm going to bless all these people I just scattered. And friends, that's the purpose He has brought to pass as the one true God in Christ. That blessing has come down to rescue all who believe. It's what the church father Irenaeus said of Jesus. He said, He came down low where we were to take us up high where He is. He came down low where we were to take us up high. Genesis 11, God comes down in judgment. Beginning in Genesis 12, there's a promise fulfilled in Christ. God comes down to rescue. So you might be here this morning saying, you know, Tab, My life feels kind of mixed up right now. I kind of feel like that Babel place. I feel pretty confused. And I've been there too. Maybe even you might say, if you're honest with yourself, it's just a sense of shame. I can't explain it. A sense of guilt. And that 
shame, that guilt is saying to you, you can't build a tower to heaven. You can't climb to God. You can't reach God on your own. You need heaven to come to you. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus is God who came down low where we are to take you up high. He gave His life for you. A perfect life. The perfect life we could never live. He He died on a cross, a Roman cross, 2,000 years ago, receiving the just judgment of God in my place. He received the judgment of God for our sins. And then He rose from the grave. No one does that. (laughs) Rose from the grave, showing His payment for our sin was enough. And now, He wants to take you high. He offers you forgiveness of all your sins. Your your guilt taken away. Your your shame. Your shame removed. The the freedom we sang about being yours as as a child of God in a relationship with God forever. And the gift, the gift of eternal life. And I would urge you, friend, I would urge you to think about how God has come down to take you high. I would urge you to come to Christ believing. To to turn from going our own way. Turn from our tower building and say, you are God. I need the rescue you've provided. And you trust in what Christ has done. And He will take you up high to be with Him. But maybe you're here. Maybe you're here and you've believed on Jesus already. Say, yeah, Tab, I know that. But I feel like those Israelites in the wilderness. I'm fearful. I'm worried. I'm anxious all the time. And I'm I'm wondering, is God really going to fulfill His promises for me? Is God going to bring His purposes to pass? Is God really going to complete the good work He started in my life? I'm in this wilderness of this trial. I don't know how to get out. I'm in the wilderness of my own sin. I feel stuck. I'm struggling. And in that wilderness, here's what you need to know. The one true God will fulfill all His good purposes for you in Jesus. You know, you can be certain of that because Jesus, after He rose from the dead, it's really interesting, He poured out the Holy Spirit on His first people, the first Christians, a day called Pentecost. And they began speaking in unlearned languages about the glory of God. Think about that. If you've never learned Spanish and you go up to someone, you start speaking in Spanish, telling them what Jesus had done. That's what happened. All these different languages being spoken by people who hadn't learned the language. It was a miracle and a sign that Babel was beginning to be reversed. That the curse in Genesis 11 was starting to be undone. That a day is coming in this when this history will no longer keep repeating itself, a day when there is perfect unity between us again and all nations gathered before the throne and we sing with one voice, one language, declaring, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Glory be to God like we sang about. So, friend, in Jesus there is true security for you. In Jesus there is freedom from making a name for yourself because here's what you get to do now. Glory in His name. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, 
and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Think about the tower builders. We're going to make a name for ourselves. In Christ, you know the one who has a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every, on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's pause. Let's do that in prayer, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.